0: I've written something that's a bit more... It's a bit depressing, actually. It's a bit down Scottish sort of song. Mm. But it's a Scottish baker sort of song. Och, I'm a Scottish baker. I bake the Scottish pies. I've got problems with my drainage and problems with my wife. The two may be interconnected, interconnected cause I bludgeoned her to death by repeatedly hitting her head with my welder's mask. I disposed of her flesh and bones down the back kitchen sink. Now my toilet's blocked and my pie meat starting to stink. That will be 40p, Mr Mackay. And I would eat it before sunset if that was my pie.
1: I haven't got a song. Have you got one? I've I've, I've got a Scottish one, but it's not very funny.
0: Well, Well, you do it,
1: and and then if it's not funny, I'll edit it out afterwards, all right?
0: You promise me if it's not funny. I will, goes, yeah. yeah.
1: If it's rubbish, I'll let it out, yeah.
0: I if ain't got it. a tune reel or anything. It's one of me Scottish ones.
1: You do it as a rap?
0: I, I'll just have to do it like as a dirge. You know, like, just... like. All right, yeah, as yeah. A, anyway. This is the tale of Michael Mowbray, a man born and bred... Sorry. This is the tale of Michael Mowbray, a man born on a bed of scouring powder, and be of a heart of pure stone. On his 18th birthday, he announced a barn dance. The price of admission included a free artisan hamburger and an amusing badge. The whole island came, apart from Harry Mackay, who had a trumpet stuck up his arse from efforts to blow out an unruly Todd. <laughs> You've got to stick with it, Andy. You'll get rid of it if it's shit, won't you? Yeah? Yeah, right. absolutely, yeah. An unruly Todd, an unruly Todd. On the count of midnight, <laughs> Michael Mowbray called for silence. Hey yer bastards, he growled. You know those artisan hamburgers. Aye we do, Michael. Well, they were near Artisan, but frozen ones from Aldi on the mainland. The more fragile in the audience dropped to their knees in pain, whilst those of a phermabollock twisted their faces in temper but michael just smiled as he left the barn and tossed a flaming trungeon into its belly eighty lives were lost eighty lives were lost eighty lives were lost and now only michael and mr mckay reside on that god-forsaken island and what about Mr. McKay's Difficult Todd And what about Mr. McKay's Difficult Todd It fell out exactly one year To the night of the barn dance And is now kept in a box With various other Difficult items With various other difficult Items Oh, that's it Andy I'm sorry right. Just nip um, it out or whatever. I, I, I'll let it out, yeah <clears throat> Do I have your permission, Andy? I don't know, to sing one of me Scottish songs. Now, I know they're a bit dull, but what do you reckon?
1: No one I spoke to thinks they're dull.
0: So you let me sing it?
1: It's a bit of a mood changer, but I wouldn't say dull. Yeah, go on. Okay.
0: Um, All right, off I go. This is the tale of Sam McGregor, the last surviving adult male on the island. He had long harbored dreams of escaping to the mainland where he could sample the pastry at Greg's, or visit Costa Coffee where he could apply within. Even enroll at a banatine or pure living gym and cleanse his body with their luxury soaps. He had planned his escape for some time, but things had now turned urgent. As in the last month, 80 men had died. 80 men had died. Yes, 80 men had died. He fashioned the durable craft from firewood and discarded fencing. Oars were made from that little access panel you find on lampposts that he prized off with a large hinge from his mother's blanket box. It was past midnight when he dropped... Is my accent going? No, it's really good, strong. It was past midnight when he dropped his boat into the water and climbed down the quayside ladder. Just as he placed his boot into the boat, he heard the water roll and lap, and there by the side of the boat was a large fish swimming upon its back. As the moonlight adjusted his eye, he saw that the fish had the face of Brian McDermott. The face of Brian McDermott. The face of Brian McDermott. What do you want of me, horrible fish? Just let me pass on my way to the mainland. There's no escape from the island without consequence. Just look at the fucking state of me. You must return to your mother right away, boy, said the fish. If you're not back by her side within an hour, then she will suffer a fate far worse than that which has been opposed upon me and my shoal. Sam stared at the surface of the water, and everywhere he looked were fish. With the face of Brian McDermott, the face of Brian McDermott, the face of Brian McDermott. Sam climbed up the ladder and ran at all his speed across the barren moors. Just over the hour had elapsed when he entered his mother's bedroom. She appeared to be sound asleep. He placed his hand on her shoulder to check for warmth when suddenly she turned and stared at him fully. The fish was no fibbing. Her fate was worse than theirs. She had the the face of Louis van Gaal. The face of Louis van Gaal. The face of Louis van Gaal. There it is, Andy, you know, you can they, keep it in or leave it.
1: That, to me, that sounds like a children's book.
0: Yeah, well, my worry think- is, you know, at night when I'm talking to my children, I'm reasonably good that they are Scottish accent, but I felt that I lost it during the talon of the tale. <laughs> there you go. How very fucking hell, anyway, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I got a Scottish song, you know, if you if you'd like me to do it that'd be good i know you're not that keen on them but it's a little scottish song
1: you give it a go now and again and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't let's hope you can pull this one off
0: and you'll cut it out if it's uh, if it's not up to scratch yeah definitely okay Thus, is the tale of Stuart mcdermott a tall wiry boy of little conversation but plenty thought thought not lonely but always on his own Not depressed, but reflective and gentle in his manner. Like most of the younger men on the island, he dreamt every day of leaving to start life on the mainland. There was only himself and three other males surviving on the mull, for in the previous nine months, thirteen men had died, thirteen men had died. When he imagined life on the mainland, he saw himself striding into Timpson's heel bar and demanding that his shoes be reshod on one of their complicated revolving machines, or whistling at the lasses as they gathered around the bollards preventing vehicles entering the housing estate. He even saw himself sat in Coster Coffee drinking hot chocolate and been handed the Wi-Fi code by the lassie with tuts to spare. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> now for several years, Stuart had been researching the geology of the small island. <laughs> and inquiring of the older generation about the infamous Hellpot Hole. It was reputed to be the home of an unusual beast with whom a deal could be struck to escape the clutches of the godforsaken isle. His research had led him to a small... (laughs) (laughs) His research had led him to a small inlet... Confusingly absent from all maps and records, and fenced off with barbed wire, on which locals had hung various charms and warning bursts. <laughs> <laughs> but his desire to leave was strong, <laughs> and so, and so he tunneled under the barrier using the, eg- using the exhaust pipe from a Lambretta scooter that had dropped. <laughs> out of a plane and landed on the moors, killing a man on impact. As he clambered down the hinny to the entrance of the Hellpot Hole, he felt a fear and foreboding usually reserved for those who dared to stroke a bull's balls with a fistful of nettles. <laughs> Entering the cave, he was immediately struck by the stench of boiled onions, and sure enough, he quickly saw a figure bent over a large cooking pot stirring onions in a rolling boil of water. The figure was naked but covered in hair, a branch snapped beneath his feet, and the figure slowly turned its head toward him. Stuart made to run, but his feet were now stuck by a sticky substance that was leaking from the base of the onion pot. The beast was now fully turned, and Stuart whimpered as he saw that it had the face Of Benny Hill, the face, (laughs) the face of Benny Hill, the face of Benny Hill. Do you like boiled onions? Said the beast. I fucking do. In fact, I can't get enough of the wee sweet bastards. The beast plucked an onion out of the pot and held it unscalded in his hand as he approached Stuart with the onion held the front of him I sense you want to leave the island boy aye I do said Stuart <coughs> you'll be wanting to visit Timpsons to have a key cut on their complicated machine Another other such mainland nonsense I guess aye that's right said Stuart we'll take a bite of the onion, child. I will assure your passage through Helpot and to a series of chambers to the mainland, but there is a price to be paid. I'll pay that price, said Stuart, and he grabbed the onion and buttoned to it. As he chewed, the beast held up a gilded mirror for Stuart to gaze upon. And what he saw brought about his instant demise, simply from the shock of it. He had the face of Louis Suarez. The face of Louis Suarez. The face of Louis Suarez. And that's the that end of the tale, shit. So that's my Scottish tale, Andy. <coughs> do your Scottish song instead yeah unless this was something you wanted to do to finish Andy
1: no I've, I've had enough of this now you, you sound a bit like you've had enough of it to be honest yeah. with you is it a long one
0: oh, well, let me have a look um, yeah it is, it is it? a bit yeah. long yeah mm. do you want to knock it on the head no no let's have it okay That's, I get upset
1: when I
0: fucking come on the alright this is the, fucking hell this <sighs> oh, thank you for that um, this is the tale of Murray <laughs> Sterling His eighteenth birthday was fast approaching and he knew he must escape the clutches of the island before that date or be forced to spend the rest of his adult life in the caves neath the island, digging for precious stones to adorn the laird's numerous ceremonial capes and his bongos. His dream was to start a new life on the mainland. Many times he imagined himself wearing the orange and blue tabard of the B&Q organisation, guiding customers towards the wallpaper paste or replacement fence panelling, laughing with colleagues in the staff room as they chatted to each other through short lengths of drain pipe. Sometimes he saw himself in Cafe Nero buying a guest bean cappuccino and requesting an extra shot from a waitress with plenty of tit. <laughs> 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 and for sure, he would submit the relevant forms to gain residence rights at Oak Furniture Land with that portly man and his dozy son and enjoy the cosy wooden lifestyle it offered. But for now, he needed a boat. And that was an illegality on the island the laird employed a giant of a man known only as the boatman he would search the island every day for evidence of boat building and smash what he found with his spiked iron ball and chain the boatman's face was always covered with a hessian hood But it was said that underneath he had the face of thirteen chickens. The face of thirteen chickens! The face of thirteen chickens! (laughs) But Murray had been clever. He had assembled his craft inside the old lighthouse, a place that no other, including the boatman, would trespass, for it was reputed to be the home of Mainland Mary, a spectre similar to the Lamnia that would devour you with pure buttery love. Murray knew that such talk was bull water, so he used the lighthouse as a safe haven to build his boat. The night arrived and Murray entered the lighthouse and began to untether his hand-built boat that he had fashioned from hardened turkey tads, joined together with <laughs> sticky glue. Suddenly the room was filled with a golden light, and his heart was instantly filled with joy. A figure appeared in front of him, more beautiful than the very centre of desire she wore a blue and orange <laughs> she wore a blue and orange tabard and was seated in an oak dining chair beside her was an occasional table again made of oak <laughs> and a a bookshelf made from imported oak she had <laughs> She had touched a spare and a bottom that stretched her full length. She slowly leaned forward to offer him a cappuccino, ready poured in a paper cup with a Wi-Fi code written upon it. Drink me, Murray Murray, drink me. Drink me, Murray Murray, drink me, she chanted. She was the mainland, and he wanted to reside within her. Then boom, the door to the room burst open, and in strode the boatman. The vision of the lassie dissipated, and he was all alone and in fear. She gave you sorry I changed my voice. She gave you a window into your life on the mainland. But that is all you will ever know of it. The boatman began to remove his Hessian mask, and what Murray saw killed him in an instant. The boatman had the face of sixteen owls. The face of sixteen owls. <laughs> so, that's us, um, a salutary tale about tre- yep. trespass and the <laughs> yeah another <laughs> another uh, tragic
1: end to another
0: Scottish song. Yeah, there you go. And it's uh, a sad old place, but maybe one day someone will escape.
1: Have you got a Scottish song for us um. to end? In yeah,
0: well, you know I've always got a Scottish song. Oh, you do, you do. <coughs> I think this one, now this one, I thought I'd change it a bit this week and make it about a lassie, yeah, oh. instead of a fella, because there's a whole different set of rules on the island for the lasses. so it's about time we found out about them. Definitely. This is the tale of Mary MacDougall. Mary was the youngest daughter of Thomas MacDougall, a farmer held in high regard on the island as its sole producer of turnips and sugar beets. Mary had inherited from her father an arse as wide as a sheep is long, but had plenty tit upstairs to compensate for any imbalance. Her skin was ruddy and well tempered, due to a weekly soak in a tub of turnip water, heated to lukewarm but no further. It was the week of her 18th birthday, the date on which she must become the bride of the island laird her duty to serve him both in toil and passion, her fate to never leave the laird's castle and bathe in sweet turnip water again. It was Mary's duty to forego her freedom or suffer the pain of forced labor in the caves neath the island. All other lasses had forbear the same fate, but Mary was no ordinary lass. Mary dreamed of escaping to the mainland, the bustling artisan coffee shops with bearded proprietors, housing estates with no through roads where a traveller's only option was to make a three point turn if sucked into its grip. Wi-Fi hotspots available for free on the registration of a few simple details. She saw herself rushing to the 24-hour copy shop in Stranraer to obtain a large photocopy of her favourite dog to hang on the wall of her new accommodation. When asked what size she required, the laddie would blush as a request for a big one though it would be clear from his awkward stance that he was possessed of a long and stout personal pipe. <laughs> <laughs> there was only one plan that could see her dreams fulfilled, and that was to murder the laird. <laughs> but the laird was guarded 24 hours a day by Pet Mare, a beast part wolfhound, part pig, and part generic animal, but worst of all reputed to have... The face of Ollie Mers <gasps> The face of Ollie Mers The face of Ollie Mers But in this respect Mary had immunity, for she, unlike most of her race, had no fear of Mers. In fact she was rather warm to the idea of taking the weight off his knackerback. Her plan was simple, on the night of their betrothal, she would hide a dagger in her girdle and plunge it into his heart as he clambered upon her. If need be, she could dispose of the beast Petmere by the same design. The night arrived and the laird clambered around her endless behind to position himself aside her. She could hear the rhythmic breath of Petmere beneath the bed, and she knew that she must be swift and certain in her attack. The laird spoke, I'm about to rise up and clamber upon you. Should you refuse or impart any negative signs towards the act, you will be fed to the beast. Do you understand? Aye, I do, whispered Mary. The laird made a sudden move towards her girdle, and Mary found herself frozen as his hand chanced upon the dagger. He lifted it to the light and pronounced her fate. This one is for you, Pitmere. Show her no mercy. Mary turned her head to address her fate. And what she saw killed her from shock in an instant. <laughs> the beast did no have the face of Ollie Merce. No it was far more dastardly. It had the face of honey gee The face of honey gee The face of honey gee So there you go, Fuck that's an, another bad, bad oh. fit for, for the So the girls on the island they have to on their 18th birthday obviously have to marry the laird and live in his castle yeah but then she died yeah, everyone's
1: sorry. dying on that island
0: up to now yeah up to now but uh, i've heard rumors of an escape oh um, i hope so but i do want to finish with my christmas with oh my i hoped song. you
1: were gonna do that so it's a scottish song and um here we go
0: It was Christmas Eve on the island and young Callum McBride was full of wonder and hope for the following day would be the biggest day of his young life. His parents, on the other hand, were in a spirit of trepidation and fear. For, you see, the Laird had chosen their boy to be the centrepiece of his entertainment at his Christmas feast. And for that reason alone, they had decided to effect their son's escape to the mainland that very eve. (gasps) If they failed, then their precious son would be fetched at dawn by the Laird's henchmen, and taken to await his fate in the castle. Young Callum's mind was racing. He had often dreamed of life on the mainland, the wonder of the Timpsons' heel bar with its revolving machine and its intricate leather-working tools, not to mention its sweet-smelling, powerful glues that could work their magic on even the most absorbent of materials. He saw himself wearing a tight blue suit, two sizes too small for him, as was the fashion on the mainland, and striding into Costa Coffee to demand their latest guest bean cappuccino. The waitress would be fulsome of tit and would seat him at a table where he could admire her curvature at leisure. Many times he had imagined himself dining at the latest pop-up restaurant, a fusion of Turkish and Rastafarian peasant food, served on plasterboard with drill bits as cutlery. Occasionally he dared to imagine himself out on a date at Frankie and Benny's with the waitress from the coffee shop. At the bus stop following their burger meal, she would turn to him and say, ''Would you agree, young laddie, that I have plenty tit to spare?'' Aye, he would reply, there's many a helping there with leftovers for the poor of the parish. She would laugh and allow him a brief tap on the side of her bounty. (laughs) Fast forward to midnight. Callum and his parents cower on the beach as a small craft with a single lamp approaches. Get in, lad. We must make great haste, says the man in the boat and he does get in, and his parents weep as they say goodbye, knowing that the laird would guillotine them for this offence. Three hours later, Callum stepped off the boat, onto the shore. See that light there, said the portman. That's my daughter. Go to her, and she will provide you safe harbour. Go on, away ago. go. Callum approached the light, and could ne'er believe what he saw neath its glow. It was the girl from the coffee shop. Exactly as he had imagined her. He smiled an anxious smile as she put down her lamp and began to unbutton her blouse. When fully undone, Callum was faced with a sight that killed him instantly. (laughs) For her tits were not of the expected nature. They had embedded into them the faces of Andy Gray and Richard (laughs) Keyes. The faces of Gray and Keyes! The faces of grey and keys. Back on the shoreline, the boatman pulled back his hood and let out a cracker of a laugh. It was the laird. Merry Christmas, Callum, he whispered, and both he and the waitress disappeared in a puff of black smoke. The next day, Callum's parents received the news that their son had passed away on an island beach. For, you see, he had never left, and now he never would. Do you think the story was a bit like the opening scene in *Serving Private Ryan*, Andy?
1: Terrific.
0: Yeah, you did. Terrific. Terrific. Yeah, okay. I did. Mary Gordon was the prettiest lass on the island, possessed of long, silky red hair that tumbled around her shoulders like a cascade of clematis tendrils. Her legs were long and smooth, like a bold pouring of evaporated milk. <laughs> Her eyes were emerald green and peppered with mischief. She had a stomach as flat as a pilchard's tail and plenty tit to spare should a number of suitors need feeding.' For many years the laird had had his eyes upon her bounty, but had been frustrated in his endeavours by Mary's father. He was an ill-tempered giant of a man, feared by all on the island, and had threatened to strike down the laird to death should he seek to harvest his daughter's bagel. But today Mary was in terrible fear as she sat by the bed of her dead father, for as soon as the laird heard of his demise, then surely he would come to fetch her." What was she to do? Her only chance of avoiding the lad's clutches was to escape to the mainland. Ah, the mainland, she sighed. Many an evening she had imagined herself striding along the high street in Stranra. She would visit the Timpsons' heel bar under the guise of requiring new laces for her brogues. But her real intent to watch the incredible revolving machine used to remove excess glue from the repairs. Then on to H. Samuels, where the beauty of the carriage clocks and woodland porcelain figurines, displayed in the window, would move her to tears. She imagined herself sat alone in Costa Coffee, being approached by an art student requesting her knowledge of the Wi-Fi code. As he stood next to her table... "'His personal pipe and weights would rest on the top table, (laughs) "'pulsating to the beat of African jazz, "'being piped into the premises free of charge "'by the kind owners of Costa. "'I see you're staring at my fiddling pipe, wee lass,' he would say. "'It's a fair bulk and sturdy to boot. "'I do not wish to kick your fiddling tube, young man,' she would say. "'I was just admiring its tenacity and demeanour. "'Would you care to join me?' They would talk for hours and later he would take her to his digs where they would take advantage of the Papa John's two-for-Tuesday offer. (laughs) Suddenly there was a ferrari at the door and the door was struck and knocked off its hinges. Stood in the doorway was the laird himself. (sighs) Well, 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 you're all alone now, lassie. Time for you to take your place beside me in the castle. I'll no come. You'll never have your way with me. I'd sooner die and rest with my father than do aught to please you. She picked up her father's cutlass, ready to fight the laird for her freedom. Och, it's trouble you want, I see. Just like your father, but near as poorful. Take her McCallum. Macallum. entered the room. Mary was so fearful of what she saw that she held up the cutlass and slit through her own throat. For Macallum had the face... Of Jason Derulo. <laughs> DeRulo. The face of Jason DeRulo! The face of Jason DeLuro! <coughs> the history of the island is rife with tales of strangers making it from the mainland and visiting its shores and meeting their untimely death. The last recorded instance of a mainlander visiting the island shores was in 1976, and this is the tale of what unfolded. <laughs> Young Gavin McNeil was a trainee reporter for the West Island Express, a community newspaper for Maleg Morah, Lokaloit Glenfinnan, Knockyat and the Smaller Isles. He had particular responsibility for local and national sport. One day, while strolling on the coast at Malague, eating an oat-cake with a drink of powdered marvel milk dissolved in warm water, he came across a small green bottle washed up on the shore. Catching his attention, he found inside a handwritten note which read as follows. To whomsoever shall receive this note, My name is young Walter Bannon. I am a sixteen-year-old... (laughs) and I live on the island that can be found using the coordinates below. I am not allowed to leave the island. It is my belief that I am the greatest young footballing talent to have emerged from the west of Scotland since the great Willie Bald. You can find me every day practising my skills down at Wilbrook's Common above Bongo Cove as marked on the map. Intrigued by what he had read, young Gavin charted a small craft and headed for the island. How do you think he's going to get on? He's making his way across the sea. I'm assuming he'll end up dead. (sighs) Let's find out. As the mainland disappeared from his sight, his boat was suddenly surrounded by a strange red and grey fish that leaped around the boat, causing a whisper to be heard. "'Turn back! Turn back!' they seemed to say, but Gavin ignored their pleas, for they were just red and grey fish and their conversation would not hold much quarter, e.g. at a ceremony or educational seminar. Arriving at the cove, he was surprised to see a young woman resting on a rock. She wore a tight sage nylon blouse and it was plain to see had plenty of surplus unused. (laughs) And additional supplementary folds around her midriff to provide for grip and comfort when on board. His personal pipe stiffened slightly, but instantly relaxed as she spoke. I am the gatekeeper allocated to this cove. This is your first and last chance to leave without harm occurring. Turn away. But he ignored her advice, as she was just a lassie with unused tit and plentiful grip, and as such her advice would ne'er be taken as important, for example in a bookmaker's or at an engineering conference. He followed the path upward, and from his vantage point could see a young boy playing football alone in the dust. <laughs> For sure, his skills were unworldly. He would kick the ball high upward to a perfect vertical and trap it on one knee before swivelling 360 degrees and burying it in the net. A line of five footballs were dispatched into the goal with the young man using only the very tip of his heel to propel them. Gavin walked at a pace toward him. The boy juggled three footballs upon first his head and then by a combination of his shoulder and his personal pipe. As Gavin approached, he shouted, Hey, young Willie, how do you do? (laughs) I'm Gavin. But his words stopped there and sudden. For when the boy turned toward him, what Gavin gazed upon killed him in an instant. For Willie had the face that was a combination of Benedict Gumberbatch and Nicola Sturgeon The face of Benedict Sturgeon <laughs> The face of Benedict Sturgeon So there Ooh, you go. I was right What what were you right Death. about? It was dull Yeah he died But who warned him? There's a little quiz What wh- who tried to warn him? I don't know, I wasn't listening so you weren't listening well the red and grey fish tried to warn you right
1: him. turn back turn back is is, is this going to be a regular thing where you test me afterwards about
0: what's happening um, in, the, in the song I, I, do you know I always assumed you were listening and you know that's a disappointment to me especially as you criticise them do you right. know what I mean
1: So, shall we go to the island? Yeah,
0: finish I mean, off with
1: that. It's a bit long, Andy, I know they always
0: are. Well, we're used to it now. OK. Young Thomas McClough lived on the island positioned nearest to the Laird's Domain and the Western Isles. Separated by the sea, but not beyond the spying eye of his telescope, purchased from the now-defunct Comet Superstore on the mainland. So it's a nice start, isn't it, Andy? It's something. So he's spying on the island with his telescope. Oh, that would Thomas a would spend hours of daylight gazing upon the Laird's Island from his bedroom window. He would watch the delivery of provisions by boat every Thursday. Rolled oats, Ooh. oatmeal, oaty drinks, oats so simple, and Rickstein salt and pepper oat cakes, especially for the Laird. Yeah, so the delivery he watches and doing the deliveries. Okay. The mainland crew would bow their heads as the goods were taken and not step foot on the aisle. A swift exit was always made. <laughs> But on every other day's attention was firmly fixed on Mallet Cove, for there every day a lassie would appear at ten a.m., accompanied by a man in a cloak and mask and sit on her own reading till the man returned to fetch her at sundown. The lassie was a total beauty. <laughs> Thomas likened her to a perfect combination of the Australian Minogue sisters. She had the dark, long, silky hair of the sister Danny but know the ugly face. <laughs> the arms and legs of Kylie, but without the thick hairs that blighted Danny's limbs. She had the thin, delicate feet of Sister Danny, but without the extra toe and half thumb on top. But in one important respect, she bore resemblance to both sisters in that she had plenty tip to spare. It was this abundance of surplus tit that inspired Thomas to paint, and he would spend most of his evenings in buns and hillocks on canvas. <laughs> then he hatched a plan, and the next Thursday, early in the morn, he slipped under the tarpaulin on the delivery boat and lay quite still, clutching a box of mellow bird's coffee. On arriving at the isle, he swam to Mullock Cove, where he knew his sweetheart would be waiting. She was seated in her usual spot and beckoned him with her index finger. Thankfully, the finger was a replica Kylie and not the wizened wart-infected digit of the sister Danny. (laughs) Their eyes locked on each other's like a space probe might lock onto a larger exploratory craft. Thomas immediately felt a rumpus along the length of his personal pipe. And covered the area with the mellow bird's package. How'd you do, madam? said Thomas. The lady replied, sadly in the voice to, the voice of Sister Danny. Not bad mate. You sir you said a fault. At that moment Thomas noticed a long chain attached to her foot that bound her to the nearby post. How d'ye you mean, young lady, and why are your chains so I am but a lure to attract young men to the island so they may be slaughtered to provide meat for the laird. Talak will be here shortly to dispose of you. Now what's in your package? <laughs> That's a large tin of mellow birds. It was a gift for you from the mainland. It truly is the world's most gentle and mellow drink. And at that, Talak appeared over the brow, brandishing a blade fashioned from the side panel of a lambetta that had fallen out of the sky many summers ago. But it was not the blade that did for Thomas, no. He died instantly when Talak removed the hood from his head, for he had the face... Of Diane Abbott, the face of Diane Abbott, the face of Diane Abbott. (sighs) So there you go. Mary McDougal McDermott McNeil was born out of wedlock in the year two thousand. Her parents had hidden her birth from all other folk, and especially from the laird and his spies. Mm. Her parents lived in a secluded craft and Mary spent her youth locked away in a secret cellar, just reading, mostly tales about the mainland and how her life might have been if she had escaped the island. So interested, a little bit. She's sort of like hiding there, like who's the famous hider? Who hid Aunt on the Frank. floor, And Frank, a bit like that sort of eye. On a Scottish island, again. Now, every year, the Laird's men took a census on the island, and today was census day. <laughs> she was instructed to hide in the secret hole and be as still and quiet as a discarded oat cake. <laughs> as she lay in her hole, her mind drifted toward an imagined life on the mainland. She saw herself working in Halfords in the striking orange and brown uniform. She would carry out free health checks on vehicles and advise motorists of travel requirements when driving abroad in Europe. You must always carry a litter tray and a tin of plums when travelling in France or you will be subjected to an on-the-spot fine, she would warn the motorists. In Italy you must always have at least three aqualungs and a bag of pepper in your boot or you may spend a night in the cell. (laughs) And in Spain be sure to always have a wedding dress and a bread maker in your car or your car may be seized and crushed without further notice. After work a young handsome colleague would take her for a dram in a local hostelry. As the whisky loosened his tongue he would comment that she had a formidable amount of tut so much so that huge swathes of it had to be considered surplus. She would giggle and place her hand alongside his personal pipe so that it swole and forced the AA membership card in his pocket to cut into the bulb of his Horatio. <laughs> <laughs> then she heard the floorboards above her creaking and the sound of the laird's henchman descending the stairs to the cellar. Try as she might, her fear got the better of her and she let out a little oaty tummy squeaker. The cover of her hidey hole was wrenched open and she died an instant death. For the henchman had the face of Robbie Savage. (laughs) The face of Robbie Savage! The face of Robbie Savage! So, uh, that was... uh, that was another Scottish term. It
1: was very heavy on driving regulations.
0: Aye, well, she was uh, advising motorists before they travelled to Europe. Right. New French regulation your headlights must be covered with small dinosaur stickers. <laughs> Mary Forsyth was 19 years old and had just given birth to a baby daughter. The child was fathered by the laird, for as with every girl on the island, she had spent the night of her 18th birthday in his arms. Mary had been excused duties for the first six months postpartum, but tomorrow she would return to oat-numbering duties and her daughter would be handed over to the laird's fierce handmaid, Mistress Panko. Mm. Mary lived in the servitude of the Laird, and not wanting the same fate to befall her daughter, was determined to escape to the mainland. She had, during the previous week's delivery, handed a note to one of the mainland stevedores requesting help. Mulcrum Cove, same time next week, he had mumbled. The day arrived, and Mary sat the top Mulcrum Cove, baby in arms, thinking about how life might be on the mainland. She saw herself strolling around the local retail park. First stop Halfords, where she would get giddy laughing at the curious and outlandish in-car air (laughs) fresheners in shapes and flavours she had never thought it necessary to imagine. Bacon and handrail. Summer and turkey. Night fats, Todd factory. Then over to Costa Coffee for a hot chocolate and some oaty porridge. The very purpleness of her surroundings caused her to flush with excitement. Removing her cardigan, it would be plain for all to see that she had plenty surplus tut to spare. An amount not to be measured in hands, but in buckets or suspens. A handsome student would approach her and share her table. Struggling to balance his iPad at the correct angle, he would ask. I see a lassie. I've damaged the wee hinge on my iPad holder and wondered if you could help. Och, that's a cautionary tale for the reckless, she would say. Would you like to balance it against my mug? I can provide extra ballast by placing the mug inside my porridge bowl. That's a fine idea, lassie, but I couldn't help notice that you are very affluent of tit, And if you were to lean forward or the table slightly, it would provide a mattress of support from my pad. "'I I am wealthy in the tit bank,' she would say. Um, um, "'But surely it's a bit forward of you to ask for its expanse as a buttress. "'I would surely be justified in asking you for some form of payment in return. "'Maybe you would like to play a tune on my personal pipe.' "'And even as he said it, as he felt his private hose "'swell against the packet of Hall's menthol in his chino's pocket.' <laughs> A cherry riff such a plump up volume day went to banger. <laughs> a cheery riff such as pump up the volume of the day we went to banger. Then she was pulled from this reverie by the sound of her baby's tears. A glance at her watch told her it was time for her escape. Racing onto the beach she saw the small motor boat approach, she placed the babe inside the plastic panniers she had recovered from the Lambretta scooter that fell down on the island many years ago. Then the boat was upon her and its navigator was no the stevedore she had spoken to but looked kind enough. What do you have in there, lassie? <laughs> Apart from about an acre or so of surplus tut. <laughs> it's not but supplies for my journey. Oats, oat cakes, oaty bars and some oaty drink. Ay, well, you'll not be needing that lassie. He grabbed the panniers and threw them into the ocean. Then he turned around and took down his hood. (laughs) Mary died in an instant at what she saw for this was no man but the ledge giant attack otter, Cullock. (laughs) And on the reverse of its head was the face of Robert (laughs) Peston. The face of Robert Peston. So that's it. That's it. I just wanted to say Andy that I didn't the baby's now floating in the panniers, so we can hope that maybe that little baby yeah. does make it to the mainland. Perhaps we'll find out next time. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying, end the saying that story necessarily. 16
1: years from now or something.
0: Yeah. Once every five years... A lottery was held on the island. The prize, a day's visit to the mainland with £20 spending money. This year's winner was a young lad called John Craggs. Ooh. Five years earlier, the winner was a lassie called Nellie Cochran. She had never returned from her mainland trip and many speculated she may have managed to make her escape and start a new life on the mainland. This is what John Craggs wished for himself. The day arrived and John was deposited on the mainland shore by Mallock, the Laird's security detail. Mm -hmm. You have three hours, laddie. Be sure to be prompt or we shall miss the tides and risk the Laird's anger. John ran into town, dizzy and breathless at the sights before him. He was transfixed by the bold and aspirational frontage of Sports Direct and made it his first port of call. Immediately he saw a basket of white toweling socks, full to the brim and dazzling in their appeal. Nineteen pairs for one ninety-nine. He couldn't resist and plucked out a particularly plump-looking bundle. Barely had he moved another two metres when he caught his breath at a replica Oldham Athletic away kit from the 2015 season, £7.99, extra, extra large only, but convinced he would grow into it, he grabbed it greedily. Fearing he would spend up at his first port of call, he continued this frenzy Sorry, fearing he would be spent up if he continued this frenzy, he made his way, eyes strictly to the floor, to the checkout. £9.98, said the cashier. Would you like one of our fidget spinners, reduced to £5 from £60, and quite the rage at the present? What do they do? asked John. They rotate whilst balanced on your thumb. Aye, and then what? Nothing, sonny. They just rotate until they stop rotating. At which point, you can flick them again to enjoy a further spell of rotation. Well, and you say these are quite the thing, aye? I'll take one. I've often dreamed of rotation partially under my control. Leaving spots direct, he had just five pounds and twopence left. He sniffed the air, and his nose guided him to Costa Coffee. I'll stop there, and he'd say, "What do you think, my apple at Costa Coffee?" <laughs> Um, there'll be
1: a lassie there. Will she have, um, tits to
0: spare? (laughs) Just a a hunch. You know, the truth is, how dare I? But here goes. (laughs) He purchased a medium skinny hot chocolate and seated himself by the window. He took his finger fidget out and began to play. Shortly, he was joined by a young lassie in a red cagoule and tartan trousers. I see you have a finger fidget, laddie. May I gaze upon it like I might gaze upon a drummer in a successful pub band? Aye, it's quite the thing, you know. May I have a wee spin, asked the lassie. Aye, of course, I want you to be happy. The lassie stood up and removed her cagoule. Underneath, she wore a 2015 Oldham replica kit in extra small. It was more than instantly apparent that she had a frightening amount of tut to spare. John couldn't help himself. "'Will you look at the tits on you, lassie? "'There's an excess bordering on a surfeit. "'You would need to employ a surveyor to get the full leisure of them, and hold them.' "'Oh, you wish to hold them, dear laddie? "'It will cost you, and it's heavy work, are you sure?' I've little money, but you can keep my finger fidget if I was allowed to bear their weight for a moment. What's your name, by the way? Nellie. Nellie Cochran. Do you remember that name, Andy? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> she was the lassie who disappeared the last when she won the uh, annual draw, and people thought that she'd uh, escaped to the mainland.
1: In a previous episode? No,
0: in the start in of this start episode. Of this <laughs> Jesus! Hurry <laughs> on. What's your name, by the way? Nelly. Nelly Cochrane. Hello. Sorry. Hello, Nelly. Bart Mallock. Long time no see. You're coming with me. But Mallock, I was about to swim in her thirts. <laughs> Aye, you'll be swimming soon enough, lad. With the fishes. Come now, and I'll take those socks. That's a lovely plump bundle you selected. Good lad. As they approached the island, Malak stopped the boat and let out a wailing call that can only be described as infuriating and lengthy. Shortly there was a commotion in the water and from beneath its surface, Henrik, the laird's sea pig, bearing its lead net for sinking of escapees, appeared. But it was not their fate to be drowned this day, for they both died instantly on seeing Henrik's face. For he had the face of Joey Barton, the face of Joey Barton, the face of Joey Barton. <laughs> I've got a Scottish story I've been trying to tell for the last six. No, we've got time podcasts.
1: We haven't got time, but
0: are you sure? How long is it? Well, in terms of well, I don't know like words. Shall I tell you how long it is in a four pages? <laughs> how many pages is it? It's three. <laughs> Fucking hell. What do you you reckon? Go for it. Mary McOatley was 16 years old, and thereby two years away from beginning in the service of the laird. A carefree soul, she would often wander the island in search of sights to lift her spirits. On one such adventure, she chanced across a hole under her foot. On investigation, she realised it was wide enough for her to enter, and there was nothing then to hold her back. On lowering herself into the hole, she lost her grip and fell some twenty feet onto a soft landing of straw and feathers and bubblegum wrappers. As she took her bearings, she noticed a handsome laddie tending a fire and cooking pot in the corner of the underground chamber. He wore tight white breeches and nothing on his top half. On his back he had a large tattoo of a tin of Baxter's game soup and a tattoo of a tin opener. <laughs> Down his arms individual tattoos of mainland sights, the Timpson heel bar, the old Wi-Fi code from Custer Coffee. Mary. Hello, young sir. Are you from the island? I do not recognize your face nor your shapely figure. Hello to you also, young lady. No, I'm not from these shores. I'm out dangerously going into the Asian area. (coughs) I'm a visitor from the mainland. I visit secretly and on occasions to mine the precious zinc ore. But if the Laird were to discover your endeavours, you'd be fed to his guards. Tits, a terrible chance you're taking. Aye, I would be. You do realise that you said tits then, lassie, rather than tis? I did, yes. That's useful for I have plenty of tits to spare. That's true, but can I trust you to maintain my secret? Aye, of course, especially if you allow me to visit upon you from time to time, so you could tell me of life on the mainland. Och, the mainland, that's full of delight without a doubt. (laughs) For sure, it's my dream to visit one day. Tell me a tale of the mainland, laddie. Okay, lassie, there is a once neglected billion of shops... That's just off the high street and has recently been gentrified toward beauty. There's a Costa coffee, a mandolin and loot shop, a juice bar selling all the pertinent difficult juices, an artisan table tennis kit shop, and would you believe it, a shop selling wicker shit. Oh, tell me about the wicker shit. Tits my favourite fancy thing. Aye, wicker stools, wicker boxes... Wicker umbrella holders, wicker magazine racks, wicker shoe tidies, wicker placemats, wicker egg cups, wicker... all wicker shit. Oh, stop, stop, please. Tits too much beauty for the last to bear. With that, the heat in the chamber had become too much for the Mary, and she removed her anorak and jumper, revealing that she possessed acres of spare tat enough to balance a BMX bike upon. That's a tremendous surplus of tit you have there, lassie. Aye, and I can't help but notice that in revealing thereof, your peter pipe has swollen up like the downpipe from an outdoor pantry. Aye, the force of its swelling has caused my house key to dig into its rim. Tis <laughs> quite a discomfort. They both stare embarrassed at what has just passed between them. Then they hear it. Tuts a snuffling of what sounds like a large pig or a ball. <laughs> And then suddenly the beast trips through the hole and into the chamber. It's no pig, but the Laird's such and destroy Kaipu, Arnold. But it's not the huge poisonous fangs and sharpened talons that do for Mary and the man. No, they die instantly upon staring at the beast. For it has the face of Monty Dunn. <laughs> the face of Monty Dunn. <laughs> The face of Monty Don Right, so I've got a little Scottish tale to tell you I haven't done one for a while Because I think they're probably illegal (laughs) Um, But whatever, you know These are strange times we live in Maybe I'll get get away with it James Murray was just six years Scottish accent James Murray. Forgot to do it. James Murray was just James Murray was just six years old when his mother died of oat fever. It was a slow, painful death, and at the moment of passing her face took on the appearance of an abandoned dishcloth. Oh. Thirty other women died or turned towards the daft that year due to a blighted oat crop. Young James swore at that moment that he would grow a small crop of healthy oats each year and roll them ready for any future outbreak of oat fever. Fast forward ten years and the teenage James was thinking less of oat crops and more of life as it could be on the main He saw himself at Hotel Chocolate, jokingly asking for a room for the night. Then into French Connection, where he would inquire when the next train left for Allele. <laughs> then into Clinton Cards to ask for a card featuring both Hillary and Bill. Then on to Gap to insist that they sold him some polyfiller. Then Miss Selfridge, where he would inquire whether the staff thought their boss would ever marry. <laughs> Finally, River Island to ask when the last ferry left for the mainland. Then he would rest awhile in Costa Coffee, where on an adjacent seat would be a lassie fully protected in a bubble hat and Macintosh. She would lean over at her chosen time and ask, Are ye the laddie that's been causing hilarity in the high street with your joking and your high jinks? Aye, I may well be, he replies, Would you care to join me? And be captivated by my wit. Aye, I would, I will. I have a bubbly personality myself, and would like a slice of that with my beverage. At this point, she would stand and remove her Macintosh. In pursuit of comfort, she wore a tight sage green nylon polo neck neath her coat, immediately revealing that she had a spectacular amount of tut to spare. I see you carry plenty surplus. Tit around with your lassie. Does it ne'er restrict you in your gaiety? Aye, somewhat, she replied. But its sheer expanse can come in handy as I wonder dundee. Lift up my top, and ye'll see. Slowly James rolled up her top to reveal what seemed like a full acre of tut. But it was near the flesh to which he was drawn, but the writing upon it for by using a David Beckham Indoor Sharpie pen, she had noted down every free Wi-Fi code in the area upon her tat. James applauded like a seal, and his personal pipe tapped gently against his student union <laughs> card. But suddenly his reverie was interrupted by a loud bang on his bedroom door, and the arrival into his bedroom of the laird himself. "'Hurry, boy, bring me your secret oats,' "'We've been hit by oat blight in the castle, "'and my wives are turning toward the daft.' Ay, master, I'll be away up the castle with haste. "'Just let me fetch a barrel from the cellar.' "'The cellar, you say? "'That's all I needed to know. "'Kill him, Orkiel!' "'And with that command into the room "'bounded the laird's attack fox, Orkel, "'But it was no Orkel's jagged, poisoned teeth "'that killed James. "'No, he died in an instant.' on seeing that the fox had the face of Jorgen Klopp. (laughs) The face of Jorgen Klopp. The face of Jorgen Klopp. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've had a Scottish turl. Have you? Scottish turl washed up on the shore. Oh. uh, Just near Folkestone. A lovely little throwback. Took it out out of its bottle. 48. Yeah. Wee Callum MacGregor was but 15 years old. At the age of 11, his mother and father were hanged until their death. The laird of the island was their sole accuser and judge and found them guilty of plotting the escape of Callum and five other children to the mainland for as to ensure that they escaped the service of the laird. Callum now spent his days alone in the Badfiadal cave, secured to its walls by a long iron ankle chain. Each day at sunset, Ivor McCone, one of the laird's henchmen, would appear at the cave's entrance and deposit for him firewood, some oatcakes, and a salty boiled egg or some other protein. After greedily eating his salty egg or other substitute protein, he would light himself a fire and gaze into its dancing flames. (laughs) He imagined himself strolling down the mainland high street into Costa Coffee for a latte mocha frappuccino and a good tug on the free Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi code provided by a pretty red-haired lassie with dainty hands. Next up would be Clinton cards where he would laugh and giggle at the risky messages. A picture of a man in his underpants with the message may contain traces of nuts. It's good to be fat. Fat people are harder to kidnap. What's the greatest gift for a bald man? A comb, cos he'll never part with it. On that last one, a small drip of piddle (laughs) <laughs> would escape from his personal pipe on account of its golden hilarity. He would join a small group of young lads and lasses protesting against some local gender hiatus. When do we want it? We want it now, he would cry, oblivious to the nature of the cause nor its solution. And in the crowd, he would once again glance the red-haired lassie with the dainty hands. Suddenly, "'He was taken from his reverie by the sound of footsteps at the mouth of the cave, "'Light, hesitant steps, not those of the henchman Macoon. "'Then there she was, silhouetted by the lights of the fire, "'the lassie with the long, flowing red hair and tiny hands. "'Have you been daydreaming about my person, laddie?' "'I have, lassie. I meant nothing by it. "'Twas just a fancy.' Aye, and do you fancy me, young Callum? With these words, his personal pipe turned towards the alert and thickened in its purpose. Aye, I do. I have nae gazed upon a lassie for some three years or more. Well, let me remove my coat so that you may see more of my form for your appreciation. Her coat fell to the floor and her figure was barely contained within her tight black polo neck. She had plenty enough tit for a bungee jump. As you can see, laddie, I have plenty tit to spare. Would you like to come and gaze upon them? Maybe read them the riot act for being so brazen in their attitude. Ay, alas, I would. Though do not laugh at my gait, for unfortunately the sight of them has caused my personal pipe to trap its face in my belt buckle. As he limped towards her, she undid her brassiere. And Callum fell dead in an instant. But it was not the sight of her tit that felled him. No. Twas when she turned toward the light of the fire to reveal that she had the face of Anna Soubre. <laughs> the face of Anna Soubre. The face of Anna Soubre. Do you want a Scottish tale? Oh, please. It was late summer in 1963 and the day that the present laird was to be ceremonially indicted into office as the ruler of the isle. Young Bernie McAllister was appointed to be the carrier of the ceremonial sword and charged with ensuring its blade was as sharp as a razor for the cutting of the seal on the Drachmarny scroll. Bernie suffered from cucumber urn an unusual condition that caused the patient to yearn the taste of fresh raw cucumber above anything else including love money and laughter. It had left him a sad and miserable laddie for there were no cucumbers on the island due to their tendency to induce gaiety and innuendo. Two days before the ceremony as he sat on his bed sharpening the sword with a pumice stone his cucumber craving took a turn to the extreme and he decided that he must, whatever at the cost, get his hand on a mainland cucumber. That night he made a flotation device from polystyrene, oil barrels and an empty bottle of oat water. A broom and a flipper sufficed as an oar. By the break of morning he emerged on the beach and made his way to the central shopping area first stop was Marks and Spencers full of foods and trinkets and materials that he could never previously imagined existed. Then he saw them, cucumbers large, cucumbers small, cucumbers straight, cucumbers bent like the curve of an Essex eyebrow. He gathered one of each variety, his mouth watering and his heart beating as loud as a dung beetle's shame. All he needed was a knife to remove the better skin. The bright, seductive purple awnings of Costa Coffee drew him in like a cushioned tod bucket, and he took a corner seat away from the hustle and the bustle. As the seat taken, said a young lassie in a parka coat holding a plate of mince and toast. Notice free and suggestive of much comfort, replied Barney. She removed her coat, revealing a tight T-shirt with the slogan, Keep Carmen, Marry John, written over a picture of John Stapleton, the broadcaster. It was immediately apparent to Bernie that she had plenty of tit to spare, with an avalanche in reserve should your sight line be restricted. He felt his personal pipe twitch against his zipper, and in a fluster he blurted, Would you help me with my cucumber, lassie? I'm gasping for some relief here. Well, as the laird had warned, the cucumber is a dangerous fruit, and thinking that Archie was referring to his Roger de Courcy, the lassie insisted that a local constable arrest him. He was soon collected from the jail by the laird's henchmen and returned to the island. On the day of the ceremony, the sword was not used to break the seal on the scroll, but instead to remove the head of young Burney. But it was not the severing of his head that killed him. No, it was his first glance of the executioner, for he had the face of Frank Ribbery. The face of Frank Ribbery. The face of Frank Ribbery. Ah, oh, there you beautiful go! Beautiful, evocative stuff. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win.